If you're opening up your Bible, Psalm 40, I'm going to read the text. We're going to pray, and then we'll dig in and see what God has to say about worship through his word in Psalm 40. Hear the word of the Lord, his true and holy and life-giving word. Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we have opened your word to us, we pray that you would speak through it, through me to the congregation. We pray that you would open our ears to hear that you would enliven our spirits to follow, that you would not just fill our minds with some more information, but that you would use what you have spoken and uh, has been read aloud to cause transformation, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a congregation, and that, as you have said in your psalm here, many would see and fear and put their trust in you because of what you are going to do in us through your word today. We wait upon you, O Lord. 
Please come and lift us to understand the deep things of God, to know what you mean by worship, and to follow in your ways with joyful hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what in the world is worship? What is it? When we talk about worship in the church, frequently we're, we're referring to music. Hey, I liked the worship this morning. Thank you for the leading us in worship. And, and that's not wrong. It's not less than music, but it's certainly far more than mere music alone. Here's a beautiful definition from a person named Evelyn Underhill. She says, Worship is the total adoring response of man to the one eternal God self-revealed in time. A total adoring response. Even in our services here at Grace, we acknowledge that God speaks and people respond. We have acts of worship that are declarative from God. We have a call to worship where God invites us and we respond by coming. We have an invitation to praise and then we praise him. We have a, a prayer that we bring to God and God answers by answering our prayers. It's like a conversation back and forth. And as God reveals himself through his word and through the acts of worship, we respond to him. We come to him. We, we interact with him in worship. So when we gather, or even when we're scattered, our expressions of God's worth, which is really the meaning of the word worship, giving worth, our expressions of God's worth can be understood as acts of worship. The Psalms, in general, as an entire book, are a collection of expressions of worship set into a poetic or song form. But the Bible also contains hymns and spiritual songs. Maybe you're familiar with some of these, like in Exodus 15, when, when Israel crossed the sea and there was the song of Moses, and he basically just burst out into song, and, and Israel was taught to follow and learn that song and to repeat it after him. In Judges chapter 5, Deborah has a song talking about the victory of God over his enemies. In Habakkuk 3, there's also another song. It's a song of worship. And even in the New Testament, there are songs or spiritual songs, you might call them, embedded within some of the texts of the letters or the Gospels. In Philippians 2, we read about this. It was preached on a few weeks ago. 5 through 11, it's, it's a song of praise and worship to God. The same for Colossians 1. There's a declaration of God's preeminence in Jesus Christ. So an early church hymn, 1 Timothy 3.16, which the men's Bible study has been covering, is another song of worship, a spiritual song. We have all the lyrics to these songs, but we don't have any idea what the tune is. So we just kind of make that up or fix it in or just recite that as we know it. And we also have songs that have been written throughout the generations. We're grateful for the inspired hymn writers and songwriters who have, even into this day, some of the songs we've we sung today were written in the last 10 years, and that's, that's a great blessing to the church. They help us express our worship together in our gatherings. And even this morning, the songs that we've sung demonstrate much of what we mean when we speak about worship. So today as we're looking at Psalm 40, we're asking what in the world is worship, and we're asking through the lens of a psalm, a psalm of David, which is intended to be sung by God's people, so it's David's song, but it's for his people, but in addition, as we'll see, it's also in the mouth of our Savior, this very psalm. Psalm 40 is not an instruction, it's not even a complete example of all that's contained in worship. It's just a sample of a heartfelt expression that shows three answers to this question, what is worship? What in the world is worship? So worship in the world, here's our outline, is telling of our holy loving God. Come and worship the holy God. We just sang that. 
And it's turning toward our holy, loving God. We'll see that in the psalm. An act of worship is turning toward him, away from the things that are not worthy of worship. And then finally, it's trusting in our holy, loving God. Telling, turning, trusting. And because Psalm 40 is a song and not a sermon, I'm going to illustrate each of these points as we move through the text rather than break up the text to fit the outline. So in verses 1 through 3, I'll just have it up on the screen. There's nothing fancy. There's not a lot of quotes except the Word of God. So if you want to follow along and see what I'm talking about on the screen above you or in your Bible in your lap, I encourage you to do that. I want you to see where God says what I'm telling you to believe. So first I will read again the entire psalm in chunks. Verses 1 through 3, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So I want us to see the telling and the turning and the trusting in these three verses. First, the whole psalm itself is a telling of the psalmist's experience and of God's faithfulness. Do you see that? It says, I waited and he heard. It's a testimony. It's a story of God's saving work. And in verse 3, it's a reminder that a life that's impacted by God's saving work responds to him in song. That's another form of telling. God's done this for me. I will sing this new song that he's put in my mouth. You can also see that in verse 1, it's demonstrating that the one who waited waited on God, intentionally focused on God. The Hebrew of these verses emphasizes a long, patient endurance of waiting. Uh, it might be translated literally, waiting, I waited. One of the translators of Scripture says, I waited, and I waited, and I waited for the Lord. Think about long waiting. Have you ever experienced that sense of, God, where are you? When will you come? When will you answer? When will you solve? When will you heal? When will you create something that isn't already there that will, that will relieve my agony, that will show me your face, that will lift me up out of this clay, out of this bog, out of this morass that I'm feeling with? In fact, if you are a student of the Scriptures, you know that the Psalms are not written individually and just sort of dropped in there at random. They're in sections. There's five different sections to the entire book of Psalms. And in this first section, this first book of the Psalms, Psalms 37 and 38 and 39 are all about waiting. And in Psalm 40, there's finally the relief. He's not only been waiting a long time, he's been waiting for three whole Psalms before he gets to Psalm 40. I think that's a beautiful expression of God's faithfulness, but it's also a realistic expression of what it's like to walk in this fallen world. That's what worship is like in this world. It's a lot of waiting, trusting in God. God is the one who will hear our cry. He is the one who will lift us up. He is the one who will set us right, who doesn't just give us a place to stand, but it says he makes my steps secure. He doesn't just cause us to stand. He sends us on our way and guides us in the way. The result of the telling of this event, this psalm, of this patient waiting, 
and of God's hearing and rescue is to cause many to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Do you see how worship can actually be evangelistic? Isn't that beautiful? Don't ever underestimate, as, as Pastor John was saying, don't lose that power of your singing. It's not just enjoyable, it's evangelistic. It speaks of the goodness of God when it comes from your heart with vigor and power and passion. This is a demonstration of your abiding trust in God. And the subsequent praises have an effect on those around you, believer and unbeliever. Your faithfulness in waiting on God impacts those around you. So your obedience in praising him and waiting on him can be used by God to bring others to him. Don't ever underestimate that. Even your willingness to cry out to him is a testimony of your trust and of his power while you wait. Think about this. You're seeing someone, you say, she, she cried out, and God came. He came through. He answered her. Maybe God will be there for me too. As he's lifted you, you respond by lifting his name in praise. And many will be amazed and put their trust in God. Now the psalm also speaks in verse 3 of a new song. A new song. At the end of the service today, we're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, finish it. What is it? New mercies I see. New mercies call for a new song. That old song won't do. This is a brand new mercy. I've seen God move in a powerful way in my own life. I've got a new song to sing. And that's why we're grateful for the songwriters, the hymn writers through the centuries who've given us things we love and have been around for hundreds of years and the things which we're just learning, which have only been around for a decade or less. We're grateful for the new songs. And not only songs in my ear, mind you, where did he put the song? Do you see it? He put a new song in my, what does it say? In my mouth. He expects me to sing it, not just observe it, to stand back and let it happen. He wants that song to come from me. And he's put it there on purpose. And not just to sing for my enjoyment, right, friends? I'm not just singing it because I like it. It's not just my preference. It's for his. Because in worship, we turn from self to God. It's all about what he likes. And if he's given us a song to sing, he wants us to sing it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Here's the text. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Again, telling and turning and trusting in this passage. In verse 3, we saw that many will put their trust in the Lord. And now in verse 4, we're seeing there's a blessing for the one who trusts in the Lord. This is another way of expressing worship. God, as I see people trusting you, I know that they're going to be blessed. You are so good, God. As people trust you, they're going to be blessed. That's a telling and a trusting. And then we see the contrast, don't we? The blessing is not for those who turn aside to the proud or who go astray after a lie. This tells of the folly of turning away from God to follow after those who trust themselves rather than those who follow God. 
or those who boast of pride in their lifestyle and expect you to celebrate with them. We express our worship for God and Him alone when we remain devoted to Him in abiding trust and faith in His promises, in His Word, in His ways, and not the ways of sinful man. Those who go astray after a lie could also mean a variety of things. I would say, in context, it probably means idolatry. There's a number of different ways you can interpret it, but the, but the word going astray after a lie here in this sense means those who go astray after idols. And I don't know if you have little statues in your home that you bow down to. I, I, I assume that you don't. It might even sound silly to propose that. That's not really the only definition of idolatry. Here's what Tim Keller says an idol is. Be careful, because it might hit close to home. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Idolaters can be religious people, even church people. The lie that you're following in idolatry is that you can get ultimate satisfaction or contentment in something or someone other than God. Even in family, even in good things. If it's supposed to be something that you're getting only from God, don't look to things other than God to get those. Don't find your contentment ultimately in something other than God. Idolatry can even be trusting in the lie that my own works are the basis for, of my hope for salvation. Do you see that? Turning away from God's sufficiency and his finished work on the cross in Jesus Christ and saying, well, I've done a good thing. I've, I've led a good life. My good outweighs my bad. I'm trusting in that for my assurance of salvation. Do you see how that is even idolatry? Even your good works can be idolatry if you trust in them when you're only supposed to put your trust for salvation in Jesus Christ. Is that clear? I hope so. Don't turn aside after a lie. A lie like that cannot save you. Your own works cannot save you. Put your hope and trust in Christ alone. And we see how foolish this looks in comparison with what God has done there in verse 5. Multiplied wonders. Do you see that? All the good works that you could never do, he's already done on your behalf and credited it to your account in Christ. And see God's innumerable thoughts toward us. He thinks about you more than you do. And he loves you more than you can imagine, more than can be told. Blessed is the one who turns to God from a lie, from following after the proud, from seeking an idol that can't save. This turning from idols, from falseness, from self to God is an expression of worship, showing the worth of God to save, showing the worth of God to satisfy, to produce lasting contentment. That's an act of worship, turning to God. All right, now verses 6 through 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So just as we saw that our own works, my own deeds, are not worthy of my trust, we can now see that even the works of animal sacrifice, which are directed and commanded in Scripture, do not save, ultimately. What God is after here in this passage and throughout Scripture is that we would trust in him. This open ear that you see in, in verse 6, 
That is a willingness to hear and do what he desires. Remember, it's not just, did you hear me? It's, are you listening? In Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel. That's not just, can you register that on a decibel meter? It's, is it penetrating inside your ear? Have you dug out your ear enough so that it can get inside and start having an, an impact on your life? Is it making a difference in how you live or is it just going in one ear and out the other? This, this open ear expression is, is it's actually in the Hebrew, it's a, an ear you have dug for me. You actually dug out my ear, like cleaned out my ear. That's the Hebrew idiom for it. But you've given me an ear to hear is a, is a better way to translate that into the English. Just a willingness to do what God desires. And then in verse 8, it says exactly that. I delight to do your will. A heart that embraces God's law is, is a heart of joy, not a heart of duty. This is the open ear that he actually gives us. It's not clean out your own ears. It's he's digging out your ears so that you will hear him. And we can remember this in, in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, you remember when, um, when Saul and, and Samuel were kind of duking it out and, and Saul makes an offering where he shouldn't have. He was supposed to wait, our theme for the morning, waiting on God, and, and he didn't wait. He, he went ahead and offered the sacrifices illegally, out of order, when Samuel told him not to. And, and Samuel rebukes him. He says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. That's a challenging observation, but I think it's, it's something we can take too. It's, it's not, did you do all the right things? It's, where's your heart? Does your heart delight to do the things of God? This is another worshipful turning, right? It's turning from lifeless or joyless, law-keeping duty to a heart that wants what God wants. The open ear is a willingness to hear and a desire to do. So God digs out our ear, gives us an ear to hear, and gives us the heart to live it out as an act of worship, turning from just duty to a delightful doing. Here's what Alexander McLaren says about this. He says, The capacity for receiving communication of God's will imposes the duty of loving reception and obedience. Inward, joyful acceptance of that will is the purest kind of worship. Duty itself is not sin. But here in the psalm, duty and desire are fused into one. Folks, if God has the whole person, Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then he has your duty. He's not just got your actions. He's got the whole part of you, every bit of you, and that's what he wants. Obedience like that flows from delight, not fear of punishment. Obedience without the heart is not what he desires. That's what we saw in 1 Samuel. And parents, you know that with your children, right? When they come to you and they say, I just want to do what you want to do, mom, dad. Friends, what, is, what does Spongebob teach us? F is for friends who do stuff together, right? It's that you like to do... Is that okay? Can I make a Spongebob reference? Is that all right? Uh, if you do stuff together, that means you both want to do the same thing, essentially, right? 
Or it could be this. It could be, I don't really care what we do as long as I get to be with you. Have you ever heard that? I think that's a wonderful expression of friendship. God, whatever you say, I, I want to do because I love you and I just want to be with you and I want to be conformed to your image and I want to bring pleasure to you and I want to interact with you and I want to just, let's do stuff together, God. As opposed to, what do you require of me now? Can I get away with this much? When do you have to have that? But can I still keep this? That's not what God is after. That's the burnt offerings and sacrifices that he does not desire. Yes, they were appropriate to point forward to Christ, but he wants the heart, and that's the act of worship. Worship is my turning to God in delight of what delights him. How beautiful and how pure is that? Do we sing the songs that God likes? Full stop. And let's not get into do we sing the songs that I like. If he likes it, we need to learn to like it. And not just like eat your vegetables kind of learn to like it. It's that if he likes it, what am I, who am I to say anything other? If it speaks of Jesus Christ, put it on my lips, stick it in my mouth, I want to burst it out. Folks, that's going to require the work of the Holy Spirit to change us from thinking that worship is about pleasing me to expressing my pleasure in God. Uh, Jesus comes into this picture repeatedly, but I want to point particularly to where he's even quoted as saying these verses in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Did Jesus do the will of God? That's not a rhetorical question. Let's try it again. Did Jesus do the will of God? Yes. Was it always easy for him? No. Let this cup pass from me, Yet not my will, but thine be done. Can you picture him there on the cross saying, I waited and waited. And he heard my cry. And he lifted me up from the pit of destruction. It was his delight to do the will of the Father, and it was the Father's will to crush him. This is the God that we worship. This is the Christ that we desire to be made into, to be more like him, who dwells in us, in whom we live and move and have our being. The one who waited. The one who obeyed in delight and fulfilled all righteousness. In verses 9 and 10, we see more telling. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. It's not only glad obedience, the telling of God's good news. What's another word for good news? 
Gospel, right? Telling the gospel. I've told your glad news. This is the good news. There's good news to be told here. The story of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the gospel, and we want to tell the gospel. This good news, it pours out from the psalmist. Again, the lips are unrestrained. It's not, is this the right moment? It's not, I might be embarrassed. It might be, I'm not sure whether I know how to say it completely. It just comes out. It's good news. God's deliverance is not hidden in the heart. God's faithfulness and salvation is freely spoken of as an act of worship. It's not concealed from the great congregation. Worship is telling of God's great faithfulness in the congregation. We sing of his goodness. There in verse 10, hear the words steadfast love and faithfulness. That's, remember Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. If you take the words steadfast love and faithfulness and you translate them into what it would be in Greek, it is Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. Telling the story of Jesus is telling the story of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, personified and acted out in the person of Christ on the cross, in his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reigning on high. That's the good news, folks, and it pours out of the lips. I'm starting to get excited. But even as the thanksgiving and the telling and the turning and the trusting explode off the tongue in the great assembly, the psalmist then turns to a more somber expression of lament. The second half of the psalm is really a lament. The cry of verse 1, I'm waiting. It picks up again. But see, I want you to see this, it's a cry of trust. It's of turning to God in a time of need, and it continues to tell of his goodness even while you wait. It's not when I get the answer, I'll praise him. It's I trust you even while I wait. See it, verse 11 and verse 12. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So this is another telling a telling that God will not restrain his mercy or his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's declaring our trust in God that his mercies are new every morning. And we declare together that God is merciful, that he's compassionate, that he's abounding in loving kindness and mercy. And I want you to see there's a powerful link back to verse 9. You don't have to go there, but I want you to hear it. In verse 9 it says, I have not restrained my lips. Remember how it pours out this gospel, good news, joy? I've not restrained my lips from telling your good news. And now in verse 11 it says, and you're not going to restrain your mercy from me. His part, be merciful. My part, tell of his mercy. This is trust that we express in this worshipful telling of God's care even when, or especially when, we're surrounded by trouble. I think it's even more powerful to talk of God's care and faithfulness and provision and love when you're in the pit. 
than when you're sitting pretty and it's all good and everything looks shiny and new and you're saying, isn't God great? That's not wrong, okay, folks? It's not wrong to say, praise God, I was healed from this or praise God, this person experienced this blessing. That's not wrong. But I think it's powerful when we say, I'm waiting on you, God, and I'm believing in you for good even while I suffer. Think of the book of Job. So we cry out again in verse 12, out to God, because in this world, worship in this world, what in the world is worship? There are evils without number, and they do indeed encompass us. See this, those numberless evils, the the things that happen to me, the things that people do to me, they're also matched by my own iniquities, my sin overtaking me, more than the hairs of my head, The multiplied wondrous deeds of God in verse 5, remember his deeds are more than can be counted, right? They're met with my sin, which is beyond number. My wrongdoing, my failure is limitless. Hear, Hear the cry of the psalmist, my heart fails me. I've lost all my courage. I can't do this. I can't even see I'm, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed by evil from without and evil from within. I can't find my way out. I'm still in the pit, or I'm in the pit again. The miry bog is just sinking. What's happening here? Folks, I think what's happening is that the psalmist knows what it's like to be alive in this world. Amen? This is realistic. This is true to life. Who hasn't felt this? I'm either going into a storm, in the midst of a storm, or coming out of a storm. And that's kind of the way life is. Like, what's it going to be today? It's one of the three, right? We're not done with evil in the world yet. I sink. I cry out. I wait. I trust. I'm delivered. I sink. And sin is going to do that to you whether you're the victim or whether you're the villain, it's going to do that to you. Maybe you're a mixture of both. Sin is going to keep on hitting you. And the response to this is to turn to God again and again and again and to wait on him in trust and expectation of his mercy and his help. I'm here to tell you, folks, he does not restrain his mercy. Hallelujah. Your mercy, O God, you will not restrain. That is a testimony. That's a telling. That's a trusting. And I'm not turning anywhere else because the only mercy I need is all the mercy you have for me. Turn to him. Trust in him. And tell of his goodness. The psalm then describes the battlefield. This is what we know from experience. And he encourages us to keep on fighting, to keep on calling out to God, to keep on turning to him. Verses 13 through 15. Look at as the crying out continues. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Do you hear the cry? Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. It's Lord, deliver me, help me, fight for me. So here's the battle lines at least that the psalmist is facing. It may not be exactly lining up with what you're experiencing, but here's what the psalmist is showing us. There's the ones who want to snatch away my life, people who want to see my joy crushed, people who want to see the name of the Lord discredited, 
want to take away my peace, or in the case of King David, who actually wanted to take away his life, his very life, to kill him, or the ones who delight in my hurt. They might mock. They, they pile it on. The ones who say, aha, that's the sort of the malicious joy in someone else's struggles. The psalm, this, this worship song, calls out to God not just for rescue from me, but for specific consequences to those who are against me. In the church, we don't sing a lot of songs that are asking God to nail my enemies, do we? You don't, can't, can't find that a lot in the songs that we sing. It's there. It's certainly there in the Psalms. Okay? But this Psalm and several others, they recognize God's power and God's favor toward his children and calls upon him to do battle in ways that we cannot to even work in the heart of our enemy, to bring them to shame, to discredit them and dishonor them. We turn to God for help. We trust him for the answer. And now finally, at the end of the psalm, the lament expresses trust once again and tells of God's saving power to those who trust in him. Verses 16 and 17. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor, and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So verse 16, here's another call, worship in this world, for rejoicing and gladness for those who seek God. May those who seek you rejoice, may they be glad. This is what we want to encourage in the body when we gather together each week. Every time we gather together, we want to encourage each other to rejoice in him and be glad in him. And it calls us and challenges us to do a further telling of the greatness of God. May we continually say, great is the Lord. Great is the Lord. May, we just, may that be always on our lips. May that be the, the topic of our conversation. Great is the Lord. What's God doing? How have I seen God work? What am I waiting on God to perform? Great is his name. Everlasting is his love. Boundless are his mercies. Folks, God is great whether we say it or not. Amen? So let's, let's join with the chorus. Let's agree with the truth of Scripture that he is great. What moves us to proclaim that, to proclaim that he is great, should be the greatness of our love for him. The recognition of how great his work and salvation really is. And how great our sin. How great the cost of his only son. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Great is the Lord. If we do not have a great savior as this, then great is our sorrow and woe indeed. We are truly poor and needy and without hope, save in Christ. But by faith in Christ, in his perfect redemption, we'll sing it in a moment, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. This is a reason to say continually, great is the Lord, great is your faithfulness. May we never tire of saying that. We who love the salvation of our God have reason to rejoice and sing. Amen? We have the reason to mutter, amen. We have a reason to rejoice and sing in our great glorious God. Amen? Amen. We do have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to sing, and our amens affect the people sitting next to us. 
They declare, yes, my trust is in him. Yes, my hope is in him. Yes, my joy is in him. Yes, my heart is for him. Yes, I, de I desire and delight to do his will. That's how we affect each other. As the psalm closes, we can join together and confess, even in the miry bog, in the heat of battle, under a load of sin, surrounded by malice and peril, that we are indeed poor and needy. Even King David, who wrote the psalm, says, I am poor and needy. Can you imagine a king saying, I am poor and needy? A king is rich and has everything that he supposedly needs. And David confesses, I am poor and needy. If the king says that, what does that say about the not king sitting in this room? As we come to God in worship, we are not afraid to admit our weakness. We have nothing to offer God that's going to move him to action besides our cry for help, besides our trust in him. The Lord takes thought for me. He is my help. He is my deliverer. So I waited. I wait. I will wait. This is worship in the world, friends. This is what worship is like in the world. It's waiting. The last phrase of the psalm even takes us right back to the beginning. It says, do not delay. But it puts us in mind of the end of the whole book. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, near the very end, the last few words of the book are saying, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. And that worship will not be in this world. This will be in a new heavens and a new earth when he will lift us up out of the clay of this earth and set our feet not merely on a rock but in the heavenly dwellings. And he will walk with us for eternity where there will be no sorrow, there will be no sin, there will be no sadness. It will be ultimate victory where on our lips day by day, if there are any such things called days where we will be, we will say, great is the Lord. I waited. And I wait. And I will wait. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. I turn to you. I trust in you. I will tell of your marvelous deeds. Because I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for salvation in Christ and for songs to sing that, that enable us to utter clearly and, and cleanly what is so true about you and about our relationship with you, bought at a great price. Give us an open ear. Dig out whatever impedes our ability to hear your commands. Give us a loosened tongue that we could proclaim you. Give us a heart that delights to do your will. And let us come into the great congregation, whether here or there, to proclaim great is the Lord and worthy of all praise. Amen.